We are moving along in the book of Ephesians in this series called A New Humanity. Now, in it, in this series, we see that God has taken a lost, broken, and divided humanity and drawn out of it a new society. And the question that the book of Ephesians begs us to ask is, what will unite a world that is riddled with these walls of hostility that have been built up over centuries? What will rid our world of the hate, of the division that we have, of the lack of love that we have for each other? What's going to solve this problem? And not just these problems that we see out there in the world, but these problems that we see in our marriage, in our families, in our houses, where we had this relationship that was, that was exciting and filled with love, and, and it's turning into something that we feel like we're living with our enemy, or we feel like our kids think that we're their enemies, or our friendships have broken and fallen away and feel lost, and... A lot is wrong. What will solve all of this? Um, and you know, one of the things you can do is to look back at creation to understand what God might be up to. And so, if you look at all of the world religions and if you look at all of the creation stories of these mythologies that have been all throughout the world, what you're going to find is that almost every creation story starts with war. Creation has happened because of war the death of a God, some type of disunity. But then if you look at the Christian story of creation, what you're going to find is that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this love that is so divine towards each other that they are connected as one. And each person in the the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're each working to glorify the other, to give praise to the other. They're delighting in in, in each other. And it's, it's fueling this energy, and it spills out into creation which is a completely different way of creation coming into the world. And if, and if our world has been created that way, and we've lost it, we've lost our God, it means that there's hope. And so what we're actually searching for is the same glory that was there at creation. What your marriage needs is that same glory that was there at creation. And what we find today is that glory that unites us to God, to each other. All right, let's, let's read it. So we're in Ephesians 1, and we've been in verses 3 through 14, this long, beautiful 202-word sentence in the Greek that is amazing, singing the praises of God. And we're going to read it all again, but we're going to focus specifically on verse 6 and then 11 through 14. So here we go. I'm going to read it to you. This is God's words to us. Um, If you have questions, we're going to have a time for Q&A after the service sermon is over. And so there'll be a number up on the screen. You can text those questions in as you have them, and I'll interact with them the best that I can after the sermon. All right, God's word to us from Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him we have redemption 
Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory to the praise of his glory our first po- our first point is hope it says we who were the first to hope in him in hope in Christ now i have an atheist friend of mine and he says hope is cruel and he's absolutely right if if our world was created out of a war between gods he's absolutely right if the world has been created by the death of a god he's right if The world has been created because there's a bunch of atoms and particles that collide into each other and somehow the world now exists. He's right. If that's how the world was created, out of random or out of war. And he's right because we're always made in the image of our creator. And so if we're made out of war, then we are destined for war. Or if we're made out of a meaningless, purposeless, so happenstance things collided together well then we fade into meaninglessness and nothingness and then we need to ask a question if we don't have hope what does that do to us is hope really that important and the answer is absolutely yes so I've talked to you before about this the 27 club Um, if you haven't heard of it or heard me talk about it it's this group of artists, musicians, and actors who reached the heights of fame and at the age of 27 took their own life or died from a tragic recklessness where it's like this last-ditch effort to find something that they put their hope in. And, and we say, so what happened to them? And the answer is that they were way more talented than the rest of us. And they were able to reach something that we weren't able to reach, and they kept finding it didn't deliver. See, if you don't have the talent to reach something, you can always hope that if you do get it, it will deliver. But if you're talented enough to reach it and keep finding over and over and over again, it doesn't. It leads to despair. And then you say, hope is cruel. I won't ever give myself over to this again, or you take your life. And hope isn't just cruel, it's painful. I was in a coffee shop, and I looked up, and this guy had a shirt on. It said, there is no end to the pain. You must be numb. I mean, that's the guy who's experienced some pain. You know he's experienced some pain. And, and it's true. I mean, the, the world is pain. There is enough pain in this world for us to take deserts and fill it with an ocean from our salty tears. Like, there is enough of that. There's enough in this world to make you cynical, to break you. And if you choose cynicism, you can do it. But I just want you to know, it's not because there isn't hope. It's because you gave up the search too early and pain won. 
But hope here in this context, you know what it means? It means all, you take all of your dreams, all of your desires, all of your wants, and there's a tendency for us to say, I got to protect myself, so I'm going to turn it down. I'm going to turn my desires all the way down so I will be numb to it all. Survival mechanism. But you know what Christianity says? Mm-mm. It says take your desires and turn them all the way up to 10 and then go even a little further. And when you do, there's something in you that's going to rage to try to find the world that you were created for. And you're going to search and you're going to search and then you're going to find a God and then you're going to say, this is the God. And then you're going to say, this is the God who created all things, who made all things, who, who had a joy and a delight in himself so great between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that this excitement energy just spilled out, not out of loneliness, but out of fullness and created the world. And then you're going to see that same God come into the world and go to the cross and die and enter into death. And then that same power at creation inside of death. He breathes life inside of death and he rises from the grave and then he is seated at the right hand of the throne and he's ruling and he's reigning, reigning right now and he's promised that one day he will return and when he does, he will make all things right and everything will be made new. Bless you. You look for more. And then that means if you find it, then we have renewal in our world. It means your marriage has renewal. It means you have renewal in your relationship with your kids. You have renewal everywhere. You found Christ, and then you know what you do next? You erupt into praise. In fact, in our verses, it says three times the phrase, the praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. The praise of his glory. This is our next point. Now, despair is when you hope in something, and you take a bite of it, and it's sour. And you keep biting something, it keeps being sour, and you realize, oh my gosh, there's nothing that's going to be delivered for me. It's hopeless. You've reached despair. But if hope is finding the thing, then that means praise is taking a bite of that thing and finding out it's greater than you imagined it could be. And then what happens then is a joy because you taste it and you're satisfied and you're finally finding the rest you sought, the satisfaction you sought. What happens is there's something that starts stirring in you and it's called joy. And it starts bubbling up and it bubbles more and more until it's got nowhere else to go and the pressure builds up like a soda bottle. And it's building up so much that the the bottle starts, the cap starts twisting off and then it erupts in praise. Hands lifted. Voices shouting in song. That's what praise is. It's, it's taking the joy that's in you and God, like a wellspring, just fills it up so much it's got nowhere else to go but out. Charles Spurgeon, um, called the Prince of Preachers, talked about Moments where he was praying, he was with God and he's praying and he has so much joy that it hurts and he has to ask God to make the joy of his presence stop because he feels like he's about to die. Now, I don't know why he would make that up. I don't think he's made that up. I've never experienced that, um, but I do know to some degree the joy of the presence of God. And I pray for me and for all of us that we would find what he found. Because if you have that, you're filled with life. And, you know, go back to your spouse that you're angry at, someone you need to forgive. 
Um, you're mad at somebody because it's like they've taken something from you. But if you're filled up with this much joy, they can't take anything. There's so much joy, it's spilling out of you. And so then it becomes easier to forgive. Then it becomes easier to hope. Then it becomes easier to look at people with love, knowing that they could hurt you by loving them, but you know what? You can do it anyways. You can even love your enemies because nothing can be taken from you because the Holy Spirit is giving you something inside of you that feels so joyful that it's like, I have everything. I have him. He's enough. You have access to that kind of joy. In fact, over and over again, we see in the New Testament that there are commands to be joyful. And there are commands to praise. The, the ver, it's a verb that's always an imperative, which means God is commanding you to do something there. Commanding you to praise him. And if God has commanded you to do something, it means that he has given you the resources to do it. Which means you have complete access to joy if you want it. Now, do you want it? Do you want to be praising him? Do you want to be filled with that joy? And the answer might be that you don't. And you say, well, why wouldn't I want that? Well, I don't know. Maybe you're punishing yourself because you don't think you deserve it. Maybe you don't. This is grace. Maybe, maybe you're punishing someone else with your sadness. And in doing that, you're getting back at them because you're mad at them. And so you refuse to be joyful. You refuse to be happy. Because, well, you want to take something from them. Look, if, if you want joy, if you want happiness, you have access to God. It's all right there for your taking. So what are you going to do? Knock on the door, open up, and go in, and there you're going to meet the Christ. And then, so, so then we ask this question. It's an important question. How do we get joy in Christ? The answer is an encounter of his glory. All right, so this is our next point, glory. Glory means weightiness. It means that everything else must move around something and if, if it is more glorious than everything else that's there. It can't be moved. So if God is the maker and creator of all things, then he is not moved by mountains, but they quake in his presence. And when he speaks with the wind of his voice, the seas part. And when he commands it, the stars shine that much brighter. And if he is glorious, then that means in your suffering, you have something to climb up on. You have something to hope in in your pain and in your difficulties and in your sin even, you climb up on him, the rock, the foundation that can't crumble. And what it means then is your sin might touch you. The suffering might just take hold of you for a bit, but then it can't hold you. It washes away from you because you have a God who you can climb up on, who is far more glorious than everything else. And so everything else around him must move to him. And if you're up on him and you've put your faith in him, then everything moves around you because you are on him. It's not faith in yourself. It's faith in him. And as your faith in him grows, you just start to realize like nothing can take me down. And it's not because of me. It's because of him. If the world is getting the better of you, you might need a bigger God. 
And you may be thinking, well, okay, I'm a Christian. What am I doing wrong? The world is beating me. I'm losing. I have a sickness. I have a pain. I have loss. My heart's broken. Well, it might be that you're just only looking at the pinky of God. And if you just saw the whole of him, it would change everything for you about who he is. And then you're looking at the whole fullness of who God is, and then you see him go to the cross for you. You say, my God has done this for me. Yes, he has. He's done this for you. Often, we find the glory of God in our difficulty. Right? You don't want to hear that. But, and it's, it's a combination of faith with our difficulty. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know the story, there is this three men who are commanded to no longer pray to God. And they keep, keep praying. They keep praising him. And they say, we're going to throw you in the fire. And they keep praising him. And so they finally push him in the fire. And when they fall into the fire, there's another in the fire with them that holds the heat off of them and they're able to walk around in the fire with this fourth person who we're supposed to understand as the personal God of the Old Testament Yahweh. God with them. And so they met him because of the combination of their faith and because of suffering. Um, Glory doesn't just mean weightiness though. It also means splendor, brightness, brilliance. So in other words, here's the deal with God. He doesn't need to glorify himself. He just simply, what it means, if God is glorifying himself, all it means is he's pulling back the veil and he's showing who he is. He can't make himself greater than he already is. All he can do is reveal his greatness to us. And so so here's how the Bible describes his glory. Thunder, fire, a radiant light, a brilliant cloud, In the heavens there will be no sun or moon because the brightness of his glory gives light to all the earth, all the world. And then there the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. One day, and you can be cynical about that. You can And in one sense, you have every right to be because look at our world. It's hard to have hope here. But in doing that, you lose out on the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity. Now, the next question we need to ask is then why does an encounter with the glory of God give you joy? Um, Jonathan Edwards helps us here. I want to read to you something he wrote, something he preached Um, I think it's brilliant. I love Edwards. Um, I think he is able to capture, uh, well, let me just read it to you. He says, what an honor it must be to be a creature who is infinitely below God and less than he, to then be beautified and adorned with his beauty, with that beauty which is the highest beauty of God himself, even holiness. So we read that God has made us holy. So what he's saying is all the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the righteousness of God. It's been, we're like jeweled in it now, like we're covered in it. We have the righteousness of Christ covering us and we're clothed in it. 
Like, I'm not even getting out the beauty and the majesty of what this is. Like, you see the greatness of God, and then he's like, I'm going to spoil you by clothing you with me. And we're, what did we do to deserve this? Nothing at all. It's a beautiful, amazing gift. And then, so Dan Ortland, in his book on Edwards, listen to what he says. This is cool. Um, a little scary, but cool. Everything Edwards wrote on Christian living funnels down to this. All the obedience and giving and generosity and kindness and praying and Bible reading, all of it in the world without a sense of divine beauty is empty and even damning. Well, that's intense. And what he's saying is you can come here. And if you come here without joy, it's damning. He said, you can give all you want, but if you do it without joy, it's damning. You can do all the things that the Bible has told you to do, but if you do it without joy, it's damning. Now, that's intense. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's all about understanding this phrase, the, the, the what was it? The praise of his glorious grace. Here's what it means. We are convinced that we as humans are good enough to earn our way up to God, to be adorned with his beauty by our effort and by our actions. And so we do all of this work, but it's duty because we haven't received anything yet. Like It's like we have to do this in order to get up to God, and then we are like bargaining with God, like, God, look how great I am. Don't you believe that I'm great? I mean, God, come on, please look how great I am. And there's a bit of a desperation behind us doing good things. And if we're doing it that way, we're not doing it out of joy. And if we're not doing it out of joy, that means we haven't actually received something that makes us joyful. So we're, we're, we're like the walking dead. And what we need is to receive something that's a gift by grace so that something is already in us that gives us joy. And then that grace bubbles that joy up in us so that we live a life filled with joy. And it's a joyful response to all that God has done for us. And so, gosh, why do you love your spouse? Why are you seeking just like this excitement in your marriage again? Well, because joy is in you because you've seen the grace of God. And then your, your spouse does something to make you upset and you're like, it's okay because I've upset God millions of times over and I'm okay. So I can be forgiving. I can forgive my boss, my friend, my kids, my parents because there's so much life in me. It's like, I want to spoil you now with the grace that I've, been, that I've received. Joy is the marker of true faith. Now, I know what some of you are now thinking. What's wrong with me? Because I don't feel that joy. And now you just scared me a little bit, David. And so, so the Christian life is this. We have these moments where we've had this encounter with God. And maybe for you it's been a really long time. And maybe you are living a dutiful life to God because you're remembering past moments with God. And you're trusting him. And you're hoping it's going to come again. And that's okay. But I just want you to know, that's not the heights of the Christian life. That's like the low part of the Christian life. You, you, you feel empty. You need to be filled up with the joy of his praise and his glory. And so, 
you're down there at the bottom and you're doing what you ought to do and that's really good. You're, you're like in the dark night of the soul and you are, you are giving it your go. But I just want you to know, don't stay there and you don't have to stay there. And so the question becomes, how do you get out of that if you're there? If you're in a dark night of the soul, what do you look at to get out of it? And the answer again here is his grace. In fact, his grace is his glory. It said, and and you think about this, it's like maybe what you're doing, maybe there's this big distance between you and God because you're, even though you know you're not supposed to try to earn your way to God because you're a Christian and now you're like, it's all about grace. You keep acting like God loves you or doesn't love you based off of the way you're living your life. And if you are doing that, you are losing out on joy. And what happens is you're like this bug and you see the glory of God, but you're trying to earn your way to God. And so you touch his glory and it like zaps you. It hurts. Or God withdraws from you because you're trying to approach him and say, God, love me because of this. Love me because of that. When what you're supposed to be doing is saying, God, love me because of Christ. And if you just do that, you'll turn from this like bug that's trying to poke a zapper into a caterpillar that touches the glory of God and is transformed into a butterfly. Now you're flying. And you look beautiful doing it. And if you don't find that grace, you know what you're going to do? You're going to look at your career and you're going to say, I got to find glory there. And you're going to seek glory there. And you're made for so much more than finding something that your career will give you. Or you're going to go to your spouse and you're going to seek glory there. I'm going to tell you, your spouse will never be able to satisfy you the way God will satisfy you. But if you don't have God and you don't have his grace, then you're going to go to your spouse and your expectations of them are going to be so high that you're going to be drowning them in these high expectations and they're never going to live up to it. And your marriage is doomed because of it. Or you're going to use fame or acclaim or something like that. And, and then the song from The Greatest Showman just rings true in your soul. It's never enough. Never enough. We need his grace. So how do you know you have it? That's a good question. Our verses say we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So this is our last point, Sealed. Sealed means that you have been branded by God. You have the mark of him upon you, and that mark is the Holy Spirit. And that means three things for you. It means security, it means authenticity, and it means possession, like God, like you belong to God. So security, genuineness, or authenticity, and possession. All right, so the first one, security. It means that despite your best efforts to get away from God... He's not going to let you do it. So my, my youngest son, Maverick, he, uh, well, he's a very mischievous boy. And we were at the exit of a store, actually not very close. He found his way to, towards the exit, and he started walking to the door, and the doors opened up out to the parking lot, and then he, like, starts going. And Elise, my wife, says, stop. And he looks at her, smiles, and then keeps going right out which is very much like him. Now, I'm like him with God in a lot of ways. If I could have lost everything that God has done for me, I would have lost it a million times over. But I'm sealed. I'm good. 
I have security. The second thing is authenticity. Um, authenticity means like there is a genuine experience between you and God. Um, the phrase, it said, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed. So to hear something is like you can hear that honey is sweet, but it's not till you taste it that you believe in its sweetness. So the mark of somebody who has the Holy Spirit is that they've tasted and seen that he's good. I was at, um, the, if you remember the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when it first came out, I went to the movie theater and watched it. And I've never heard that much weeping before in a movie theater. And, I mean, this could have been just watching the crucifixion of Christ. If you don't know the movie, it's, it's the story of Christ, and he dies on the cross, and you're watching this gruesome thing happen. And, you know, it could have just been some guy dying on the cross. But the weeping was because everyone in that theater looked up and saw their Savior doing it for them. And that's a very different way to watch the movie. And that's why there was weeping. There's a lot of stuff that I don't like about the movie, but the beauty of that moment was like, that's my savior. He did this for me. And I have this genuine experience like, I can't believe this. This is God doing this for me? And the third is that you are his possession. There's a little bit of debate among the scholars, if this is saying that we have an inheritance from him here, or if we are his inheritance. But if you look at the whole thing, both are true. If you look all throughout scripture, both are true. Now, what does it mean that you are his inheritance? Well, it means that the maker of everything who holds all of the glory, and it's like the, the most divine, most glorious being in all the cosmos who will ever exist, operating outside of time, outside of space. He thinks you are amazing, and he's actually really excited about you. You are seen as his treasure, his inheritance, which means he's never feeling like he got a bad end of the deal. Now, you got to think about that. All that God endured to get us back, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. He's never regretful about what he's done because he sees you as his inheritance. Do you have any idea what that does to you? It means that no matter what you've done in your past and no matter what you do today and no matter what you do tomorrow, all of it, he still treasures you. Not because you're great, but his treasuring you makes you great. You think about what that will do to you. It will make you feel so loved, so desired, that you start to actually live different. This is why the Christian has changed. Not because they have to, but because God has done something for them. Anxiety can't overtake someone like this. Shame can't swallow someone like this. Fear can't move you. And you become someone who is fully alive, free, and loved, filled with peace and with joy. Do you know what the word hallelujah means? Hallel means a joyful song. The end of that phrase, Yah, is a short version of Yahweh, which is the personal God of the Old Testament. Jesus comes on the scene 
in Luke 9, he's transfigured. His face is changed and his clothing shines bright with glory. And then a voice from heaven says, this is my son, my chosen one. Do you know what the chosen one saw as his joy? There's a verse that says, talking about the cross, the joy that was set before him. Now, it's not that the cross was his joy. It's that he knew what the cross would give him. In his eyes, you stood behind the cross and he looked at you as he faced the cross. And as God himself, who made all things, hung there on the cross, he pictured you through it and it was a joy for him to be there. He was paying the cost and he had no regrets in paying it because he had you in mind the whole time and you were gonna be the treasure that he saw all the way through it and it's what helped him endure the cross because you are his inheritance. You were his inspiration to go to the cross. He endured it all to get you. And then in death in hell, he grabs you. And as the father raises him from the dead, he pulls you out with him. And now death, it wants nothing to do with you because you are marked. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's like it's allergic to you. It wants to get you out. Sin slips right off of you because you are marked by the Holy Spirit. The power that was there at creation, where God delighted, Father, Son, and Spirit delighted in each other, and it spilled out into the creation of the world, we are sealed into this divine Trinitarian dance with God forever, and it has begun now. And this is why we can have unity. This is why we can be filled with joy, and this is what will change our world and renew it. And it starts in your heart, it starts in your house, then our city, and then the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the joy of your presence, the joy of your salvation, that we would wake up and see what you've done to us, what you've done for us, and what you want to do with us and through us. I pray that we would see ourselves as your inheritance. As crazy as it sounds, we would believe it to be true. And it would fill us with, with a dignity and a value and a worth. But it would humble us at the same time, knowing we didn't deserve it, but you lavished us with grace. We thank you for that and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you repeat the definition of glory and where did you get it from? Glory, well, I had two. So glory is weightiness, meaning it's something heavier than everything else. So if you take, uh, if you, if you take the ocean, I mean, the ocean is full of glory. It's weighty. But you take a big boulder. If the boulder is big enough, the waves of the ocean can't knock it over. And so you, you see this image where we have God who's this big boulder that can't be moved by the ocean and we sit down upon him as our hope and then from that we have rest and peace because we have something glorious enough to trust in. Okay, I think that's what you wanted was the definition of glory. The other one is radiance, brightness, brilliance. Where I got that from, um, I don't know. I probably got it from one pastor who got it from another who read it in the Bible and said it and, 
Everyone was like, oh, that's good. Um, all right. How do, okay, let me see if I can do this. How do you describe this message to agnostic people from a position of reasonable non-belief, divine hiddenness? They're eager and open but cannot experience or have experienced his presence. Um, I don't know. Um, it's, it's like, um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. And, and basically, if I, if I can... If I can try to answer it, someone who's agnostic, which means that they're like, maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe, um, the only thing that the Bible gives us is prayer for people in the preaching of the word. Um, the, there's a proverb that says, the unfolding, uh, no, it's just in the Psalms, the unfolding of your words give light. So there's this path of light before us, and we're... We're just reliant on this. Like, this is our hope, and this is our hope for the world, and we've got to live like we actually believe that to be true. And we've got to live like this understanding that in our intellect and in our uh, determination, we can't find God. We have, to have, we have to be found by him, which is kind of a giving up. It's so like Jesus says, die to yourself and you'll find yourself. Like, give up your own ability to find God and then you'll find him standing right next to you. Like, hey, I've been here. Why didn't I see you? You were trying too hard. You thought it was up to you, but it was all me the whole time. Um, someone said, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, this is a comment. I will answer that later. If, if you guys have a question and I didn't get to it, um, I, I always answer later. Um, so let me pray for us and then we'll come up and, and we'll sing. Um, Father, all the delight that you have for your son, you now have for us. And God, I'm saying this in a way that's asking you to help me believe it. God, let me be bold and look at the depths of my sin and the beauties of your grace and let it move me to you. And God, I pray that if there's anybody here that um, feels agnostic in their understanding of God, that you would reveal yourself to them. We're at your mercy, and so we cry out with mercy. And God, for the person who's been a Christian for all of their life and feels distant from you, God, I pray that you would help us to cry out for mercy so we might have you all over again. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.